episode 336, The Barbarians at the Gate. Who are they? And how do they cause trouble for the healthcare industry status quo? Today, I speak with Brandon Weber. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I was listening to a panel discussion and heard Brian Weber use the phrase, the, in quotes, barbarians at the gate of the healthcare industry. I think I reached out to invite him to come on the podcast before the end of the segment. But at risk of spoiler alerts, let me sum up what I think is so interesting about Brandon's insights, which he talks about on the show today. First of all, it isn't a, oh, heavens, some companies out there are trying to disrupt the status quo. Like this is some sort of newsflash that hasn't been tossed out with police lights and sirens however many times already over however many years. Brian really gets into the sheer magnitude of what's going on right now from a capital investment standpoint, but also from a human capital standpoint. How many crazy, smart, proven disruptor type people have come along with that capital? Brandon also touches on something I've been thinking about lately coalition building, for lack of a better word for it. If we have status quo behemoths with market caps of, what, a third of a trillion dollars out there, some startup who is super happy to have scored a however many million dollar seed round is not a threat in and of themselves. But if many of these littles are aligned and working together in win-win ways that ultimately take market share from the big dogs, now things get interesting. So while much attention is focused on point solutions that disrupt some aspect of care delivery, we might want to take another look at the less visible entities that are putting platforms underneath the companies that are building out services that offer economies of scale that create, you know, pipes, helping patients connect with appropriate solutions that make this emerging market just work better. It's these platform companies combined with a general willingness to collaborate that make ganging up a sort of natural strategy to build a really flourishing ecosystem. And it's that whole ecosystem that I would consider the most likely disruptor within an industry very much designed for the big to get bigger. Anecdotally, I see both of these ecosystem building factors happening, i.e. the platforms, and then also a really unprecedented level of collaborative, all boats rise kind of thinking. There are communities like the one that Brian Klepper runs for benefits professionals or health tech nerds or out-of-pocket health. For the more technology-oriented, there's links in the show notes. But based on what I see in these groups and elsewhere, the sharing and helpfulness is really encouraging and heartwarming if you're not an incumbent, I guess. My guest today, as mentioned, is Brandon Weber, who is the CEO and founder of Nava. This is one of those foundational type upstarts. Brandon's company, Nava, is a benefits brokerage, but one that's built on a platform that crochets together everything it takes to support a best practice employer health plan. For example, point solutions have to be easy to buy and fold in, while on the back end, all of those point solutions and others need access to the right data so that appropriate employees can be engaged and make the most of the benefits offered. If you think about it, it's easy to see how having a really strong foundation here amplifies the value that can be delivered and accelerates change management. Coming up also, stay tuned because I'm interviewing Kristen Bagley 
about optimal digital front doors, which is sort of an extension of the conversation that you'll hear today. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Brandon Weber, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me, Stacey. You've said, and I love this so much, Brandon, you said that there's barbarians at the gate when it comes to the healthcare industry. Before we get into what the implications are, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that today, the number of smart people and the amount of just cold, hard capital throwing itself at the front door of the healthcare industry, seeking specifically to disrupt the status quo of healthcare is at an all-time high and an order of magnitude greater than ever before. Ten years ago, about a billion dollars of capital was invested in this kind of broad digital health category, a billion dollars. Five years ago, it was about $4.6 billion. Last year, it was $14 billion. And then just in the first six months of 2021, it was $14.7 billion across 372 different companies. So truly an order of magnitude growth in capital investment. I think in parallel with that is smart people. So smart people and capital, to me, are the raw materials that that really drive change, transformation, and innovation in kind of any industry I've ever interacted with. So these are the barbarians. I consider myself one of them. They are at the gate. So we talked about the barbarians. Then let's talk about the gate for a moment. Yeah. So we've got a gate that is, I'm going to say, overly complex complexity in and of itself is a very effective barrier. I I would challenge anyone to come up with a more complicated industry. We at least have a contender here. And at the same time, that industry is also elegantly designed for the big to get bigger. Like that gate that you were talking about is not an accident. We have companies that have almost a half a trillion dollar market cap. How do you see that dynamic? Because I know there's going to be listeners who are, you know, kind of commence eye roll sequence now. We've seen this before. These (laughs) bright-eyed change the worlders come in and then they get a dose of the reality of healthcare and they kind of slink off into the sunset without necessarily having accomplished much. Yeah. Well, first off, let's talk about the gate. The gate or the kind of status quo incumbency of healthcare is probably the, one of the most well reinforced gates that you've ever, that we've ever encountered in any industry. Make no mistake. And yet we're kind of in an entirely new place in terms of some of the dynamics. So, you know, yes, the healthcare industry is designed for the, you know, as you say, kind of the big to get bigger. I'd say that like most very large industries end up getting shaped to support the largest incumbent. Automotive banking are two good examples. They even have a term for this. They call it regulatory capture, where the regulators end up serving the interest they regulate. That is just a thing. But yeah, the healthcare marketplace is truly, I think, the trickiest marketplace in terms of its design and ability to lock in the incumbent. But that doesn't mean it's immune to innovation at all. Getting back to like what is different now, I think two things. First off, like we are in an unprecedented time in terms of capital. Like no one can make the argument that we've seen this before. Like we truly have 14x more capital invested in disruptors this year than we did 10 years ago. That is truly unprecedented. And all the eye rollers, I think, know that this is different. The second factor that is impacting all of us, whether you're a massive traditional incumbent with a $300 billion market cap or someone who just raised a Series A, is COVID. 
People call them the COVID tailwind or whatever. It's shaken up the status quo. It cut five to 10 years worth of red tape around you know, cross-border digital transactions or transparency around health records. I think the other major thing that healthcare has going for the innovators is just a really, really bad status quo that's getting worse at an accelerating rate. So you have unhappy consumers, like quite unhappy consumers, who are getting more unhappy. Unhappy doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners. You have six to eight percent premium trend line and you know five to seven percent medical cost trend line. All of those things are just kind of untenable. Those are the ingredients that I think are leading to this moment being truly just unique. It doesn't mean that you know, execution isn't kind of key, but those are kind of the, I think, the factors. Are the barbarians actually sort of expanding the industry? The healthcare industry in the United States is $3 trillion right now. Are these barbarians just basically going to make that a larger percentage of GDP? And they might be helping consumers in the process, you know, helping patients get better care, doing all kinds of things of value. But at the same time, they're not really a threat to the existing incumbents. It's not a zero-sum game. It, you know, the market share that the barbarians earn is not coming from anywhere. They're basically creating a positive-sum game there. How do you see it? I just follow the pain. I'm like, where is the pain? I spend my days talking to HR leaders who are providing healthcare for their employees and the employees who are trying to buy healthcare for their families. The number one pain point that we hear every single day is, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. The number two pain point we hear is, I can't figure out how to use it. I can't figure out how to use it, what to buy, that kind of stuff. So if you follow the pain, I think we do truly have a lot of like really great innovative companies coming into the marketplace on to solve pain. I was just looking at Vera Healthcare. Uh, they were just, they just raised a bunch of money from JP Morgan. Vera Healthcare is a direct primary care based health plan that basically puts 100% of its fees at risk around saving you money. That if we don't do what we promise to do, which is save you 10 to 15% on your total healthcare spend, we literally just give you back our money. So that's an organization that is betting their entire business model on lowering costs on that first pain point, right? So they are actually, if they're successful, they are actually shrinking the $3 trillion pie a tiny little bit. And then what their hope is, you know, what Vera's hope is, is that other employers and other organizations are going to go, oh my gosh, I need that 20% savings too. So they take market share from whoever it is that they're taking market share, incumbents, um, others, and in doing so, they're lowering the cost. There are a lot of organizations, like my organization included, that are hanging their hats on lower cost and better employee satisfaction. So I, I don't think it's just a given that they're, they're just trying to like grow the $3 trillion pie. It's like you follow the pain. If like the number one pain point is, is cost, then the provider that can go and solve for that pain point really effectively is going to just go win. They're going to go win market share and they take it away from the folks who are in the incumbency. So circling back on a couple of things that you were yeah. talking about, number one, the the Vera Health and, and this exploration of, it's often called advanced primary care. Last week I interviewed Brian Klepper. He said, it's not the primary care business anymore. It's the risk for full continuum of care business. So he's like, anyone who thinks that the future is in, you know, this little box called primary care might want to rethink that because the true value that's starting to happen relative to primary care is the ability to create an infrastructure that supports the full continuum of care. So I thought that sort of dovetails with what you're saying. 
as a force to lower the cost of care. On the other hand, you know, so here's our counterpoint. You've got some of the payers to a large degree, in certain cases, providers who have these innovation accelerators or investment funds, these large provider organizations, well-capitalized ones who are, are making their own healthcare investments. Let's just take the payer example. One of the reasons why they're getting very involved in providing care is there's no MLR. There's no profit cap relative to providing care as one reason. I mean, that's the cynical reason, right? There's the non-cynical reason, which is you can run the full continuum of care if you're a payer, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, it is obviously, you don't have to be <laughs> super smart to notice that payers are starting to see themselves as, I'm going to say, aggregators of provider services. And in certain cases, the providers themselves, right? You've got Optima employs more PCPs than anybody else. Yeah. And It has been said more than once, and I can understand why. Does that actually reduce the cost of care? You know what I'm saying? Uh Like you're Uh you're cost shifting all over the place, like who's actually Uh making the money, but these payers make money based on a percent of premium. And and if if they're not doing that, then they're making money off the the services and they've got shareholders that are more, more, more in here. More is better. Do these entities have the financial discipline to actually reduce their revenue? I think the track record is showing that these moves are not resulting in a reduction of per-service healthcare costs, for sure. So typically, the innovation doesn't come from the incumbents. They get kind of like forced into it because new players are coming in and taking market share. So I think that that's probably going to be the case here because the for-profit entities or profit-seeking entities, so if that continues to deliver the same result that we are seeing, which is, like I said, 6 to 8% premium trend and 5 to 7% medical trend, that is the opportunity. Like right there is the opportunity for organizations like ours, like Vera, like Eden Health, like Galileo. I think there's an important point here because like you're, we're kind of talking about, well, like, isn't everyone just in it to make money? So therefore the pie grows. So 3 trillion needs to go to 4 trillion for all these new companies to come in. That's not how most like disruptive innovations actually grow their business. They grow their business by taking market share. They don't grow up by going from three to 4 trillion. They grow up by going from like zero to 10% market share. And they do, and they take that 10% market share from the incumbents by delivering some really killer 10x better value proposition to that end customer, which is usually way better outcomes or way better service or lower cost or both. So that's what you see historically. And that I think is what we're going to have to see here in healthcare. And once you see that competitive ball rolling, that's when the incumbents are like, wow, these guys are taking a lot of market share from us. We need to figure out a different game here. Do we try to buy these folks? Do we try to play their game and actually recognize that, you know, we're going to have to like compress costs. We're going to have to do what they're doing. And that's what we hope starts happening over the next three to five years. You know, the more that risk is assumed, the less people are going to question whether some of these PE-backed entities have the financial discipline to not profiteer. Because if they're taking risk and the benchmark is the current spend, then obviously the incentive isn't there to see how high they can jack up the cost before someone notices. Oh, 100%. Well, think about it. Here's a simplistic example. So let's say I am Oscar Insurance, tech-enabled, cool insurance company really on a big mission. So let's say I, I go from zero to 5% market share in the total market. And in doing so, I lower the total market size from $3 trillion to $2.7 trillion by lowering premiums and stuff like that in my market cohort. But I'm stealing market share from UHC and Cigna, et cetera, all my competitors. 
I've built a massive business. That is what every single startup is trying to do. Like that is literally the way that we think about total addressable market. It's not like, hey, the market's worth $3 trillion today. We think we can make it worth $4 trillion. It's like, no, hey, actually, the benefits brokerage industry is making $22 billion a year, literally, off of commissions. And we think if we can lower that to $15 billion a year and take 10% market share, that is a $1.5 billion revenue company that's probably worth $25 billion. That is just like the calculus just like that we are thinking about. We're like, take market share and lower spend and improve quality. So let's talk about the, these upstarts, because I think when most people think about the disruptors, you know, I say in air quotes, in the healthcare industry, where most people immediately go to is, I think, two places. One of them is in advanced primary care or into point solutions. You know, so for example, we're going to do kidney disease better. We're going to do musculoskeletal better. Are those the major ways that you see or the only ways that you see to be disruptive? Are there other categories of disruption that you're seeing as impactful? The answer to your question is is what compelled me to get into the benefits brokerage industry. But maybe just lift it up kind of one layer higher. I think what we observed in in the two years of study on on the industry and just spending time with kind of every stakeholder, we were actually just blown away by the amount of innovation that is already happening under every single slice of care delivery. You you named it. MSK, type 2 diabetes, any chronic care ailment, primary care surgery, et cetera. There was just a kind of an explosion of, of startups doing really cool things. I think the other thing that we observed was that like no one was like getting access to that innovation. It just wasn't making its way to the buyer. You'd ask them, you know, how many lives do you have on your platform? How many people are you serving? And their answers would be like one to two orders of magnitude smaller than we would have expected based on just the quality of the solution, the amount of money they'd raised, the amount of time they'd been in it. What that told us was like, wow, the future is actually here. It's just not evenly distributed, which is the William Gibson quote. And it's so true in healthcare. The future is here. It's just not making its way to the buyer. So one area that we're really excited about, one of the areas that needs innovation is the actual kind of distribution layer or marketplace layer itself that connects buyers, you know, employers, employees, members, and the sellers. We're talking about infrastructure here, actually. So like the boring part of almost any industry revolution that really kind of enables it is the underlying rails or infrastructure that allows data to move more effectively, that allows you know people to kind of transact a little bit more efficiently. There's now a new class of startups that are working on the rails or working on the infrastructure. R- really cool stuff. Like how do we automate moving data between you know carriers and employers? How do we automate and create an API layer that gives us provider quality information in near real time? How do we actually like move money more effectively? There's this infrastructure layer that is now literally has gone from kind of zero to one over the last five years, massive amount of capital kind of flowing into it. And now what's happening is other startups, all those really cool point solutions are building on top of it so that they can actually make their lives a lot easier. So that is a new class that is massively enabling. And you've seen that in other industries where you have to build the rails before kind of magic really happens. We actually had to do that in commercial real estate. Amazon's very famous for building kind of internet rails with AWS fulfillment. They basically kind of build the stack that an entire ecosystem of startups sits on top of to enable innovation there. 
So when you're talking about the infrastructure layer, and I know there's a bunch of different flavors of what that looks like, depending on what you're doing. And one of those flavors you mentioned, it's just very operational. Like, you know, I've also seen Mm -hmm, some that mm -hmm. are working on just doing the uh, physician certifications in different states or the moving of data around, you know, that kind of thing, which basically facilitates more efficient point solutions. Everybody doesn't have to be recreating the wheel. There's another kind of infrastructure layer, if we're just kind of figuring out what all the infrastructure layers are. And that might be the platforms that are starting to come up, like the one phone call that some of these, you know, you've got Grand Rounds, you've got Transcendence, you've got, you know, like there's a bunch of them that are springing up. Accolade, where what they hope to do is to be the one phone call. So if I'm a employee, I can call that company. I guess I talk a little bit about myself or they're able to pull up the data and then they say, oh, if you, you've got knee pain or something like that, like here's the point solution that you should go to. They're, they're kind of steering on behalf of those employers. So maybe that kind of that steering component, the APCs, the advanced primary care, like maybe that's a little bit kind of doing that too. So, the, so that's another kind of infrastructure layer that we're talking about. Is that it? I think everyone is buying to be that one app in the pocket that acts as the aggregator, the hub, the kind of the steering point. What I think about is kind of the more traditional approach to that, which was the employee navigation apps. And I think you hit on some of them. Accolade probably be the most, you know, well-known. Rightway, Amino, lots of those folks. And then you have kind of the folks who are going at it more from the care first side versus, you know, healthcare navigators are going into primary care. And that's like Eden Health. I think Grand Rounds is moving there. Galileo, some of these folks. But I think the race is on to like, how can we solve the problem that the end user has, which is there are way too many freaking point solutions for me to figure out. And I'm I'm not going to have 21 different apps on my phone or 21 different websites to log into and kind of be that, yeah, that aggregator accolade. There's a metaphor that they keep using, like we want to be the app store for digital health, which totally gets. I think that's a hugely important thing that we collectively, those of us who are trying to build a better healthcare market marketplace are going to need to solve, which is that the complexity at, at the end users, you know, end users face. But Sitting on top of that, maybe just kind of some other, you know, some other things that are really enabling right now. You've got like companies like Noyo, which is basically just doing a bunch of like really great modern carrier connection stuff, like fixing the carrier feed problem that's literally been the bane of many employers and benefits brokers existence and carriers existence for the last 10 years. You've got companies like Turquoise Health who you know recently funded. They're basically building themselves on top of the Hospital Transparency Act and just saying, we are just going to aggregate all of this like carrier negotiated pricing and we're going to make it available via a modern API to any service that wants access to it, whether it's carriers themselves trying to just do faster, more efficient carrier provider negotiations or cool digital health companies that are trying to like make searching for a doctor or a procedure really awesome. Those are like real enablers. Those create like super powers in terms of operational leverage for other companies that can leverage those things to deliver that you know value inside of a, you know, a broader platform or a broader product that they're bringing to market. We started this conversation talking about the two pain points of, of healthcare, just broadly speaking, probably pretty reductively. But, you know, one of them is can't afford it. And then the other one is can't figure out how to use it if I'm a patient. At the same time, you know what they say, culture eats strategy for lunch, but incentives <laughs> eat culture for breakfast or whatever that that is. So we've got still these perverse incentives because fee-for-service is still the predominant way that 
providers get yep. paid and it's quite a profitable endeavor if you can manage to have a favorable payer mix and get lots of these commercial patients. At the same time, we have employers, let's just say, who have been so lackadaisical. They get overwhelmed by the complexity of the system. You never got fired for hiring IBM, right? Like you never got fired for hiring Aon and United Healthcare, right? Like and you have a lot of risk averse individuals who are just not willing to stick their personal necks out. Even mm-hmm. it's like the tragedy of the common to a certain extent. Like to a certain extent, if you build something that is inordinately better, they will just come. You know, like there is some truth to that statement. On the (laughs) other hand, you've got such inertia in the marketplace and you have perverse incentives, which are really making it not in certain people's best interests or organizationally Uh at least to let the word get out about this. So, you know, is it just kind of a timing thing and and the market's and innovation is marching forward and, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks or how long they try to stall it. This is going to be inevitable or are we less optimistic? Well, you're talking to one of the optimists. I'm one of those. I am very much optimistic. I think you hit on some really interesting things. So those perverse incentives, you know, fee for service or like percentage of premiums, et cetera, those are the incumbent business models. So one of the things that, that you see when you go look at, wow, that industry innovated a ton in like the last 10 years. It's amazing. It's transformed. It's way better than it used to be. One of the kind of factors that you'll see or the commonalities is the innovators that came in and changed that industry or modernized it, they innovated on the business model as well. They innovated on the incentives. And you're seeing that right now, like literally Lyra on mental health, Omada on you know chronic care. We just talked about our company. We are actually innovating on the business model in addition to technology or user experience. And I think the common thread there on those business model innovations are around put our fees at risk or you know go at risk, deliver value. And if we don't, we get dinged for it. So that is happening right now. That is getting, you know, kind of stressed out HR leaders to look up and listen and lead in. The other thing that I am a huge free markets guy. I believe in the power of competition. I believe in the power of competition, especially when it's competing on things that matter to the consumer, which are typically cost, convenience, and quality. To the extent that our healthcare marketplace moves incrementally toward a world where the providers, the vendors, the suppliers, the digital health or the non-digital health folks are competing on those vectors, competition is the thing that holds price down. Not, you know, not the business models themselves. It's literally just like people vote with their feet. The problem, and I think you hit a nail on the head, like so many bushy-tailed, bright-eyed entrepreneurs who come in and say, I want to fix healthcare. They believe that if you build it, they will come. That is their, their original sin of founding a healthcare startup, because that is absolutely not true in the regime today. There's so much complexity and nuance that drives a healthcare consumer to a provider, right? And it's, you know, obviously it is networks, it's insurance carriers, all those different things that if you're naive to the dynamics of the marketplace, you kind of gloss over and then you get punched in the face. So your question of like, well, why now? So those two things I think are starting to happen. The other kind of magic that's happening is there's enough critical mass in this kind of disruptor ecosystem where we're able to partner with each other. I mean, like we are literally like deploying the kind of innovative solutions, like we as the broker marketplace layer deploying kind of the most innovative solutions on the, you know, the supply side, we're using the new infrastructure players to make us faster, better, kind of like more data rich than our competition. So that ecosystem, I think really has great gained a critical mass where we can build off each other. 
and it's happening. You've seen that actually happen in, in other industries like enterprise SaaS too. There's the, the new players have started building off of infrastructure like AWS and Twilio for, for phone and text. And then all of a sudden they were just like, 10x better than the old guard because they had kind of like transformed their way to a really great value proposition. And we're seeing that now. Like we are personally experiencing that as one of these, you know, one of these players. So in other words, we shouldn't be comparing any individual entity versus the incumbent. We should be comparing the whole yeah, the bunch whole, of them. Yeah. <laughs> the I think that's team. a great, that's a, that's a better reframe. Yeah. Like compare the ecosystem to the incumbency in terms of what it can deliver. And I think you just hit a few minutes ago, you hit on like one of the, like the biggest knocks against this new ecosystem is it's too, like we have too many different point solutions that the end user and the HR buyer are just getting confused by, right? So we've got to solve that. Like we have to solve that problem. Uh, these things need to click together into a seamless, wonderful end user experience. The buyer, I'm speaking specifically around the employer sponsored marketplace, the buyer needs to understand how to buy all this stuff. It needs to be easier to buy. Right now it's like really hard. They're getting cold called by like a hundred digital health vendors and they're like, I hate this, this is killing me. So we got to solve that. But that's a solvable problem. And once it does get solved, I think you're absolutely right. You look at the all of those pieces together in that new, new ecosystem versus what is the traditional kind of industry delivering. And I like our chance. You mentioned the broker marketplace layer, which is another one of these infrastructure bits. Yes. So we've got an employer and they, again, they're getting phone calls from everybody about all these different disease states. It's becoming overwhelming, you know, so that's on one hand, right? On the other hand, they also have a close relationship with their existing broker and maybe even their existing carrier, right? You know, so the easy way to go would be just to delete all those voicemails and and Mm -hmm. stick with the current. Yeah. You started off with something that I think is just so important. The benefits brokerage industry marketplace is a hugely important infrastructure layer in the broader $3 trillion healthcare industry. After spending a ton of time in the healthcare marketplace with supply side folks and buyers like HR leaders who are trying to figure this thing out for their employees, it just became crystal clear to us that the benefits broker is likely the most underappreciated stakeholder in the healthcare industry. And here's why, like the benefits broker basically, like, and we, we're not guessing on this. This is what our HR, you know, leaders around the country were telling us, like, they control and they truly direct the purchasing and the deployment of all things healthcare and health-related benefits for just over 160 million Americans who get their health insurance either through their employer or, you know, a partner's employer. And they really, they, like, that cohort, that slice of the American healthcare buyer, 160 million Americans, just literally relies, almost outsources this entire purchasing and then the deployment, which deployment is just as important. Like, how do you get these tools in? How do you get the employees to figure it out? All things healthcare. The traditional brokerage industry is not well set up to match and deploy like these cutting edge kind of tools for employers and employees. They're just not well set up. So you actually have to get really good at change management, employee communications, and like using kind of modern tools to get this information to the right people. And none of that infrastructure has been built at, you know, Mercer, Marsh, Willis Towers, Watson, et cetera. For us, the biggest unlock is this notion of deployment. Because when we went and talked to all of the digital health folks and asked them, what's your biggest challenge when you actually want the biggest challenge is like just even getting an employer to like think about buying us and just having the mind space to do it. And they would complain a lot about brokers just being like this total gatekeeper, sharp elbow, just not bringing them in. The second big challenge was like, it's so hard for us to get our the employees to actually understand and use our tool. We get these abysmal engagement rates of 
three, five, seven percent relative to what our goals are. How do we how do we help employers and employees be better buyers and then users of benefits? And then how do we help the most innovative suppliers on the supply side get access to the right customers? That's that's why we think a lot about marketplace. Brandon, if someone is interested in learning more about Nava, where would you direct them for more info? Definitely just go to uh, www.nava.io. We're also super active on LinkedIn. We've got this amazing panel of advisors from Dr. Marty McCary to head of healthcare at Walmart and head of benefits at Amazon. And we're doing a bunch of interesting content with them, fireside chat. So those are the two places. Brandon Weber, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Super happy to be here. Great to hang with you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.